Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Zikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on further reflections uh, related to the 35th Ordinary Summit of the African Union held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, earlier this month. Sudanese mass democratic activists are being arrested uh, by the military coup regime ahead of a day of action tomorrow. Somalia is once again facing drought and food deficits in the Horn of Africa. We'll have details on that story. And there has been a rebel attack in the West African state of Benin. In the second hour, we continue our annual commemoration of African American History Month. We will trace some aspects of the intellectual history of African people from the West African uh, Learning Center of Timbuktu uh, to uh, the African American people in the United States. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a Musical interlude uh, with uh, music from the Republic of Congo, Brazzaville. And uh, this is from the Orchestra Sili Bichu. Let's listen in. Joseph 
Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux souffrir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux souffrir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je suis fâché. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Oh ma belle, je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. C'est à cause de toi je veux mourir. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Tout le monde est attaqué. Oh ma belle, je suis déçu. Tout le monde est attaqué.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February the 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of our program. We just heard uh, music from uh, the Republic of Congo, uh, Brazzaville, from Orchestra Sili Bichu. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story uh, deals with the further reflections in relationship to the uh, recently held 35th uh, Ordinary Session of the African Union. The summit was held in the capital of Ethiopia, in uh, Addis Ababa. According to uh, Tai Burhanu, the 35th summit of the African heads of state and government had attracted the world's attention for various reasons. <clears throat> Ethiopia, the host, uh, has made glamorous preparations uh, for auspicious, auspicious occasion with the spirit of Africanism 
and inspiration uh, of the founders uh, of the OAU, uh, carried on by the African Union. The spirit of Pan-Africanism signifies unity, uh, freedom, independence, democracy, and prosperity of African nations and envisages for an economic and political union that would have immense contributions to the process of globalization for the benefit of humanity. The purpose of this report uh, that was published in Borkina, uh, which is an Ethiopian-based uh, publication, is to have a reflection on the success of deliberations, limitations, or shortcomings and decision on coup d'etats and to cast few ideas or suggestions on a few critical issues as a way forward. The report says that since the foundation of the Organization of African Unity in 1963, and of course this was succeeded by the African Union uh, 20 years ago in 2002, 74 ordinary and extraordinary sessions of the heads of state and government have been held, out of which 33 sessions were hosted by Ethiopia, and the rest uh, of the 40 sessions uh, by 29 African member states. The brotherly African countries have witnessed their honor and pride on Ethiopia for its relentless struggle for the independence and freedom of Africa and for its exemplary role as a non-colonized African state and for its strenuous efforts and commitments to the strengthening of the continental organization by deciding uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to be the seat of the headquarters of the Organization of African Unity as well as the African Union. And you can read uh, this uh, report in its entirety uh, on uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And in uh, regard to developments in the Republic of Sudan, Amira Usman, a Sudanese women's rights activist, was getting ready for bed a few minutes before midnight when about 30 policemen forced their way into her home in the capital of Khartoum uh, just last month. The men, uh, many in plain clothes and armed with Kalashnikov rifles, pistols, and batons, banged on her bathroom door, ignoring her mother's pleas to at least allow her to get dressed before they took her away. It was like they were engaging in a battle or chasing a dangerous terrorist, not a disabled woman, uh, said Usman's sister, Amani, uh, who is a human rights lawyer. Usman, uh, who uses crutches since a 2017 accident, was imprisoned twice under Sudan's former President Omar al-Bashir for violating strict Islamic laws governing women's behavior and dress. This time, she was detained uh, for speaking out against military rule. Uh, with her January 22nd arrest, Usman joined hundreds of activists and protest leaders targeted since the military coup last October removed a transitional government from power. The detentions have intensified in recent weeks as Sudan plunged into further turmoil with near-daily street protests uh, sparking fears of an all-out return to the oppressive tactics of uh, previous regimes. The coup upended Sudan's transition to dem democratic rule after three decades of in international isolation under al-Bashir uh, who was removed from power in 2019 after a popular uprising. Nonetheless, he was removed by the same military forces who remain in power today, nearly three years later in the Republic of Sudan. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other stories, uh, sitting under the hot sun, hungry, women and children await food 
and aid in a camp on the outskirts of Somalia's capital of Mogadishu. They have walked for days, fleeing the drought, now ravaging a large part of rural Somalia. Their growing ranks are expected to swell further in the coming months as the Horn of Africa region faces its worst drought conditions in a decade. This week, the United Nations World Food Program warned that 13 million people in the region, including parts of Ethiopia and Kenya, face severe hunger in the first quarter of 2022. Immediate assistance is needed to avoid a major humanitarian crisis. The agency warned uh, the Horn of Africa has long been vulnerable to drought and hunger conditions often exacerbated uh, by armed violence. Somalia's uh, government in November declared a state of humanitarian emergency due to the drought, with the worst affected parts, including south-central areas of Lower Juba, Gato, and Lower Shabil regions. The impact on families is being felt more severely this season due to the result of multiple prolonged droughts in quick succession, a worsening situation security-wise, desert locust infestations as well, There's been soaring food prices, reduced remittances from outside the country, and less money committed by donors. The aid group Save the Children said earlier this week uh, in regard to the drought in Somalia. A survey in November covering 15 of Somalia's 18 regions found the majority of families were now going without meals on a regular basis. It said in a statement in Somalia, 250,000 people died from hunger a little over 10 years ago, uh, when the United Nations declared a famine in some parts of the country, half of them were children. The World Food Program has said it needs $327 million to look after the immediate needs of 4.5 million people over the next six months, including Somalia. Somalian leaders have also been trying to mobilize local support, and many have responded. And uh, finally... In the West African state of Benin, attacks by suspected Islamist extremists in northern Benin have killed at least eight people, including army soldiers, a park rangers, and a French instructor. The government has confirmed uh, six people were killed and a dozen injured in an ambush on Tuesday, which included explosions from improvised landmines on a patrol of park rangers in the north of the West National Park near the borders of neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger. Benin's government spokesperson, Wilfred Leandra, who Beje has said uh, five rangers and their French instructor were killed in that attack, he said. The rangers were part of an anti-poaching patrol working with African parks, an international organization that manages several parks on the continent, including the West National Park. The West Park is shaped like the letter in the alphabet as it follows the bends in the Niger River as it straddles Benin, Niger, and Burkina Faso. Reinforcements uh, from uh, Benin's armed forces have been deployed to the area, and African Parks is working uh, with the government to secure its staff and the surrounding civilian communities. The uh, spokesman said, no group has claimed responsibility for the attack with Islamist extremist groups with links to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group have spread violence across West Africa, including to coastal countries like Benin. The French National Anti-Terrorism Prosecutor's Office says it has opened an investigation into the killings, adding that the French instructor involved was 50 years old. A second attack occurred two days later on Thursday, in which a park patrol hit an improvised landmine and then was assaulted. 
a civilian in the park agent died in an incident, he said. And uh, you can read all of these stories on the Pan-African Newswire website. And that's going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, for the Pan-African Journal. In concluding, uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. The service is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to the website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, and on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. I want a Sunday kind of love A love to last Saturday night And I'd like to know It's more than love at first sight And I want a Sunday kind of love Oh yeah I want a, a, a love that's on the square Someone to care, and I'm on a lonely road that leads to nowhere. I need a Sunday kind of love. I do my Sunday dream. A certain kind of lover Who will show me the way In my arms Need someone Someone to enfold To keep me warm When Mondays And Tuesdays grow cold Love for all my
wanna Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, a Thursday. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Etta James with uh, the tune entitled Sunday Kind of Love, and we are a kind of love uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, February 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. My name is Abayomi Azikwe, and I am your host uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal. Right now, we want to move uh, into our commemoration of African American History Month, an annual commemoration organized, uh, founded uh, by Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, way back in 1926, uh, some uh, 96 years ago. And, of course, uh, every day and every week uh, is uh, Black History for uh, the Pan-African Journal, but we do recognize the work of uh, Carter Woodson and W.B. Du Bois and so many other uh, African historians, uh, Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett. We, of course, pay tribute to Drusilla Dungy Houston and so many others who have made such a powerful uh, historical and literary contribution uh, to African people. Now we're going to review uh, the African intellectual history of Timbuktu, uh, going back its origins to the ancient African civilizations of Ghana, of Mali, and Songhai. Let's listen in to this lecture. Okay, greetings. All right, let me get straight into it. The Manuscripts and Intellectual Legacy of Timbuktu. Okay, my early research. There's a very famous African-American professor called Chancellor James Williams, And he wrote a book called The Destruction of Black Civilization. And in that book, this is what he says on page 207. In the Muslim destruction of the Songhai Empire, the main centers of learning with all of their precious libraries and original manuscripts were destroyed first. Now, this idea that there's no intellectual heritage in Timbuktu left was shared by another important scholar, Professor Sheikh Anta Diop, He was a scholar from Senegal, and he wrote the legendary book, Pre-Colonial Black Africa, where he says, the loss of the judicial and administrative archives, assistance of caddies kept minutes of the sessions, but tons of documents have disappeared. Influenced by Professor Chancellor Williams and Professor Sheikh Anta Diop, most black scholars believe that West Africa's intellectual heritage was mostly destroyed after 1591. And this is still the mainstream view among black scholars. But new evidence has forced a paradigm shift. 
uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates, African-American scholar, made a TV documentary called Into Africa, where he mentions the Timbuktu manuscripts. Jeremy Isaacs uh, put together the TV series Millennium, 1,000 Years of History, and the period 1300 to 1400. He again mentions the Timbuktu manuscripts. John Snow and Echo Eshun did a TV documentary called Living on the Line. Again, he mentions the Timbuktu manuscripts. Aminata Forma did a TV documentary called The Lost Libraries of Timbuktu. Also, National Geographic got in on the act, and News at 10 got in on the act. So what has survived? Black families in Timbuktu still own around 60 private libraries today. And these family collections have survived political turbulence, climatic fluctuations, and despite floods, fire, insects, pillaging, and plunder, wait for it, one million manuscripts may have survived. And let me quote a source. Dispersed throughout the region from the shores of the Mediterranean to the northern fringes of the forest regions of Guinea and Ghana. For example, this photograph is of Mokhtar Sidi Yahya El Wangari, and he is the director of a 16th century Timbuktu library owned by his distant ancestor, Professor Mohamed Bagayogo El Wangari. So to give some details, the Ahmed Baba Institute in Timbuktu was established in 1970, and it was named after Professor Ahmed Baba, who was once a student of Professor Mohamed Bagayogo El Wangari. And this modern institute has nearly 30,000 manuscripts that are being studied that are being catalogued, that are being conserved. However, during the colonial period, which is where France conquered West Africa, many manuscripts were seized and burned. And following natural disasters like droughts, many people buried their manuscripts and fled. Many families still refuse access to researchers for fear that the pillaging of the colonial period when France conquered West Africa will be repeated. So the big question is, is why hasn't all this been recognized before? Well, in 1894, France conquered Timbuktu. And during the colonial period, owners of manuscripts thought it prudent to hide them away or bury them because they feared, perhaps correctly, that the French colonial power would seize those manuscripts. And it is only within the last 30 years that the intellectual life of this West Africa region has revisited the sun. Moreover, during the French colonial period, French was imposed as the main language, and that meant that many manuscript owners lost the ability to read and interpret the manuscripts in their own languages because French had been imposed. All right, so what am I going to talk about in this session? I'm going to talk about an overview of West African history, Timbuktu in the age of the Mali Empire, Timbuktu in the age of the Songhai Empire, university life, the literature itself, and the 2008 South African Mali project. Okay, six themes in the session. Okay, let's go. All right, the... West Africa history. Let me give you a brief overview, and this is my first theme. There was a West African professor called Abdurrahman El Sati, and he wrote a book called Tariq El Sudan. Tariq, roughly speaking, means history or time, 
and then El Sudan, it literally means black, history of the land of the blacks. And this was written in 1656, and he wrote, I saw the ruin and collapse of the science of history. I observed that its gold and small change were both disappearing. And he was the pioneering scholar to divide the history of the West African desert belt into the rise and fall of three empires, ancient Ghana, medieval Mali, and the Songhai Empire. So where were these empires? This is a map drawn by the very great professor W.E.B. Du Bois, and you can see that ancient Ghana is in a different place to where um, Ghana is today. And then it has its rise, and then it fell. And then there was a second empire in the region that he calls Melistein, everybody else calls Mali. And then you've got the third empire in the same region, just bigger, called the Songhai Empire. Now, Songhai is how we say it in English. Some people think that should be pronounced Shongai, but we'll just keep it pronounced, uh, we'll keep the pronunciation simple. Okay, ancient Ghana. This was the first of the West African desert empires, and at its height in the 10th, of the 11th, and, the 10th and 11th centuries AD, the empire ruled territories that we would today call Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Mauritania, and Mali. The capital city was called Kumbisale, and there were two waterways running through the empire. One was called the Senegal River, and the other one was called the Niger River. Essentially, half of West Africa was under one imperial structure. We have an account written by medieval uh, philosopher Ibn Khaldun, the philosophy of history, where he says, at the time of the conquest of northern Africa, and I've put in brackets, by the Arabs between 639 and 708 AD, some merchants penetrated into the western part of the land of the blacks and found among them no king more powerful than the king of Ghana. His states extended westwards to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. Kumbisale, the capital of this strong populous nation, was made up of two towns and formed one of the greatest and best populated cities in the world, says Ibn Khaldun. Now, the Arab conquest of North Africa and their spreading of Islam into West Africa meant that you now have a change in African culture because Islam now becomes a rival for traditionalism or ancestralism in Africa. We also get North Africa being conquered. Um, the original North Africans used to be black Africans, but by the time we've got the Arab conquest, that now changes, and North Africa faces what we call the Great Migrations. So if you go to places like Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, Algeria, and you're wondering, you know, but this is supposed to be Africa. Where are the Africans at? Well, essentially, the first refugee crisis. There was uh, a North African queen who stood up to the Arab invaders called Dahia el-Kahina. She was captured and killed. But we also get Islamic sources of African history written by Arabs. And as Islam starts to spread... Uh, people convert, sources also written by Africans. And one of those sources is Ibn Haqqal's Surat al-Ad, 951 AD. Now, the topic area that I'm going to quote is the relationships between the city-state of Aldergast, which is in West Africa, and the other kings. Let's read it. 
The king of Aldergast maintains relations with the king of Ghana. The ruler of Ghana is the richest king on the face of the earth by reason of the wealth and treasure of nuggets dug up in the past by his predecessors and by himself. He exchanges presents with the ruler of Kuga, whose wealth and prosperity is nothing like that enjoyed by the ruler of Ghana. So we have a clear statement. The popularly held belief that the ruler of Ghana was by this time period, the 10th century, the richest individual on this planet. And the same Ibn Halkal visited the region and witnessed a merchant writing another merchant a check. Okay, now, what else do we know? During this time period, we get the birth of Timbuktu. And it was started by desert nomads. And these nomads are... Um, Today, some people call them Sanhaja Berbers. Another name for them is Tuaregs. Um, and they're the people that set up Timbuktu during the ancient Ghana period. And they established it somewhere around the year 1100 AD. Typically, they camped near the river in the dry season and took their animals to graze in the inland territories during the rainy season. While the nomads were away, they entrusted their belongings with their slaves, one of whom was called Buktu. This is the typical story. And the campsite was thus called Tim, which means the well of Buktu, Timbuktu. What began as a semi-permanent nomadic settlement evolved into a town and then later a city of permanent settlement. And from 1100 to 1300, the city developed into a thriving commercial center. Now, how did it develop into a thriving commercial center? Because of trade. Timbuktu became a center of commercial exchange between Saharan Africa, tropical Africa, and Mediterranean Africa. Mediterranean Africa is now Arab North Africa. Now, acting as a magnet, Timbuktu attracted men of learning and men of commerce. It benefited from the gold trade coming from the southern reaches of West Africa. It benefited from the salt trade coming from the Sahara Desert. And approximately two-thirds of the world's gold came from West Africa by the time we get to the 14th century, the 1300s. Now, the products themselves, textiles, tea, and tobacco were imported into this region. Based on the number of poems about tea uh, found amongst the manuscripts of Timbuktu, this was clearly an extremely cherished item. Tobacco had even been approved of. There's a treaty by Timbuktu professor Ahmed Baba called... Check out the title. On the lawfulness of tobacco usage, and uh, Baba claimed that it was neither a narcotic nor an intoxicant. However, the most profitable trade item in Timbuktu was books. The Tariq al-Fatash, which is another of the medieval chronicles, says that the king brought a, bought a great dictionary for the equivalent price of two horses. And buying books and displaying books was a source of wealth and a source of prestige. Okay, Timbuktu in the age of the Mali Empire. This is the same empire that Professor W.E.B. Du Bois calls Melistine. Okay, let's get into this. The Mali Empire begins with a different ethnic group in West Africa called the Mandingas. And the first great Mandinga ruler was Sundiata Keita, and he conquered uh, ancient Ghana in 1240, and two generations later, Mansa Musa Keita 
built the Malian Empire by conquering a whole swathe of West Africa and ruling it between 1312 and 1337. Islam was now definitely the religion of the West African cities. Arabic became the language of scholarship, and the trade was based on gold, just as it was during the ancient Ghana period, salt, just as it was during the ancient Ghana period, and now a new product that was exploited during the Mali period, copper, coming from a city called Takeda. Now, the role of Arabic. Arabic could be described as the Latin of Africa, and it became useful when communicating between different ethnicities, Songhai, Fulani, Tuareg, Bambara, Mossi, Hausa, and just as Latin became an important language in medieval Europe associated with Christianity, Arabic became an important language in Africa associated with Islam. And just as Europeans adopted the Latin script to write their own languages, Africans used the Arabic script to write theirs. Now, the height of the Mali Empire, Mali is ruling um, a huge swathe of West Africa. On a modern map, this would be Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Mali, and Mauritania. Um, the important cities, there's Niani in the far south, which is the capital city. And the other important cities are Jene and Timbuktu. Now, the wealth of Mali. Did I mention that Jeremy Isaacs did a TV series called Millennium, 1,000 Years of History? Did I mention that? Okay. Uh, you get the dramatic music at the beginning, and then you get the voiceover. And the voiceover says, In the 14th century, the century of the scythe, natural disasters threaten civilizations with extinction. The Black Death kills more people in Europe, Asia, and North Africa than any catastrophe has before. Civilizations which avoid the plague thrive. In West Africa, the empire of Mali becomes the richest in the world. And that was how that, the 14th century documentary was introduced on the BBC. And then the same program was sold to CNN. So the big question is, is well, what did they spend the money on? The Sankora University Mosque was built around the year 1300. Some people say earlier, there are French sources claiming that it was built in the middle of the 11th century. But uh, uh, the traditional mythology says that it was founded by a woman, and she belonged to an ethnic group called the Aglal, and they were part of the Tuareg ethnicity. The Sankore Quarter in northeast Timbuktu became the dwelling place of the scholars and teachers, and it was here that the first libraries were created. Scholars and kings acquired books during their travels from merchants coming from the north with books for sale. Mansa Musa I, also known as Mansa Musa Keita, bought works on Maliki law and ordered the construction of the great mosque of Timbuktu, and that building is still around. This is a style of architecture in West Africa called Western Sudanic. So when Europe was doing its thing, Gothic, this is what uh, we were doing. Uh, now, there were challenges, however, to Malian hegemony. There was an ethnicity known as the Mossi, and in 1343 they attacked Timbuktu. And the uh, Tariq al-Sudan says, the Mossi Sultan entered Timbuktu and sacked and burned it, killing many persons and looting it before returning to his land. Timbuktu, however, recovered, and the Malians continued to rule it for a hundred years. However, 
1433, we read, the Tuaregs began to raid and cause havoc on all sides. The Malians, bewildered by their many depredations, refused to take a stand against them. And so Mali lost control of Timbuktu in 1433. Okay, so what happened next? We then move to the third of the great West African desert empires called the Songhai Empire. Some people pronounce that as Shongai. Uh, and this is now my third theme. The Songhai Empire was once tributary to Mali, but became independent as Mali declined. Um, the first great Songhai ruler was Sunni Ali Mbe. And the name Mbe means the champion. So his dynastic title is Sunni. His personal name was Ali. And he ruled between 1464 and 1492. He conquered most of the Songhai Empire and seized Timbuktu in 1469. The records say, <clears throat> he perpetuated terrible wickedness in the city, putting it to flame, sacking it, and killing large numbers of people. The gold traders feared Sunni Ali would take control over their goods and transactions. So many started trading via the Hausa city-state of Kano, which on a modern map is northern Nigeria. The scholars of Timbuktu experienced a major setback. Sunni Ali drove the Sanhaja, the Tuaregs, out of Timbuktu and undertook a purge of the scholars. Many fled to Walata. So when you read the Timbuktu Chronicles, they hate Sunni Ali with a with a, 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 a ferocious hatred. Anyway, subsequent rulers. The next ruling dynasty was known as the Askia dynasty, and they offered a, a much more conciliatory approach towards the scholars. They offered them cash and in-kind, especially during Ramadan, including slaves, grants of land and privileges, and exemptions from taxation. Now that raises the question, why slaves? Now, when people hear the word slavery, everyone assumes that that automatically means whips, chains, abuse, and so on, so on, and so forth. But that's because people are looking at slavery as what happened in the Western Hemisphere, do you see? In an African context, not necessarily. There's a scholar that wrote, wrote on this, Major Felix Dubois, and he says, the reason why slaves to ensure the scholars the tranquility so necessary to a man of thought and letters. Their affairs were managed and their properties cultivated by their slaves. In other words, the point of that was to make sure that none of this got in the way of thinking. Timbuktu under the Askia dynasty, they're in power from 1493 to 1591, and the city benefited under the reign of the Askia dynasty. And this is what the Tariq al-Fatash, uh, al-Fatash means something like seeker, seeker of truth, history for the seeker of truth. We read, one cannot count either the virtues or the qualities of Askia Muhammad. Such is his excellent politics, his kindness towards his subjects and his solicitude towards the poor. One cannot find his equal either among those who preceded him nor those who followed. He had a great affection for the scholars, saints and men of learning. However, with Islam being the religion of the cities and traditional African religions being the religion of the villages, the villagers did not necessarily benefit from the Askia dynasty. So when rulers like Sunni Ali were in power, then the villages benefited 
and the human rights abuses went against the uh, uh, African Muslims. And when the Askia dynasty was in power, then the human rights abuses went towards the traditionalists. Okay, here's a map of the Songhai Empire at its height, ruling Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, Nigeria, and Niger, portions of all of these countries. In other words, a huge swathe of West Africa. The capital city is now Gao. Timbuktu is now the cultural capital. Jene continues to be a great city. Niani continues to be a great city. Kano continues to be a great city. Okay, now Timbuktu starts to rise to intellectual dominance. Let me explain how that happened. Walata, quote, where the holiest and most learned men resided, and Jene were centers of Islamic scholarship in the early days. According to two scholars, uh, Daniel Chu and Elliot Skinner, learning flourished within Jene. It had a university of very high reputation. The university boasted of having thousands of teachers. There were reports of several different surgical operations successfully performed by the medical doctors of Jene. Um, and what they're referring to is eye cataract surgery. Now, Timbuktu surpassed Walata, surpassed Jene after the year 1500. Now, its scholars and students came from the entire West Africa region, including Saharan Africa and Mediterranean Africa, which by this period is now Arab North Africa. There were also scholarly connections between Timbuktu and Fez. Fez is in Morocco. And you had North African and Andalusian scholars. Andalusia is uh, Moorish and Arab-ruled Spain. And they visited and settled in and around Timbuktu. And then you had connections being made with fellow scholars in Egypt and Mecca during pilgrimages. So what was life like in Timbuktu? The Tariq al-Fatash says, Timbuktu has no equal among the cities of the blacks and was known for its solid institutions, political liberties, purity of morals, security of its people and their goods, compassion towards the poor and strangers, as well as courtesy and generosity towards students and scholars. Okay, so what did anyone else think? There was a visitor uh, to um, Timbuktu from Morocco, and his name was Leo Africanus. Leo Africanus wrote a book in 1526 called A History and Description of Africa. And the importance of that book is the idea of an African history where we're putting together the different African civilizations in one place and bigging it up as one history. Leo Africanus could be said to be the father of modern African history. Does that make sense? And so we who write on African history, he is our big brother. Okay, what does he say? The people of Timbuktu have a light-hearted nature. It is their habit to wander into town at night between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., playing instruments and dancing. He also says, in Timbuktu there are numerous judges, doctors, and clerics. By doctors he means PhDs and DLITs, all receiving good salaries from the king. He pays great respect to men of learning. There is a big demand for books in manuscript imported from Barbary, North Africa. 
more profit is made from the book trade than any other line of business. Therefore, books made more money than gold. Books made more money than salt. Books made more money than leather. Timbuktu was also a religious city. And there was a West African proverb that says, salt comes from the north, gold from the south, and silver from the country of the white men. What they mean by white men is North Africa. But the word of God and the treasures of wisdom are only to be found in Timbuktu. And there's a local legend that Timbuktu is surrounded and protected by 333 saints, uh, as well as numerous lesser saints. By the way, for those of you that have been following your news, in 2012, I believe, you had uh, 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 an uprising in Timbuktu by the Tuaregs, and they, together with some Al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, uh, persons, trying to blow up Timbuktu uh, shrines, and it's the 333 saints that they were trying to destroy. <clears throat> Surrounding the city like a rampart were chapels uh, where these saints were buried. And according to the Sufis, a wali or saint is a Muslim mystic, usually a scholar, who has achieved such closeness to God as to possess special powers or baraka. For example, we read, The very learned and pious sheikh Abu Abdullah had no property, and he bought slaves that he might give them their liberty. His house had no door. Everyone entered unannounced, and men came to see him from all parts at, at all hours. He would be an example of a wali or a saint. Okay, university life. <clears throat> okay, the Sankore Mosque was the main teaching venue, and many scholars lived within the Sankore Quarter. Classes were also taught at another institution, the Great Mosque, the Jingwe Ribera Mosque, built by Mansa Musa. I think I showed you a picture of it. And there's another building called the Oratory of Sidi Yakia. Now, most of the teaching took place at the scholars' houses, where each scholar had his own private library, which he could consult when dealing with knotty uh, problems. Very often, a student would study under six or seven different tutors, one for each subject, and at the height of the Songhai Empire, Timbuktu is said to have had 25,000 university students. Now, the oratory of Sidi Yahya, that building is still around. It's in clay brick. Again, this is the Western Sudanic style. Now, student fees. The student will pay the teachers and lecturers in money, clothing, poultry, cows, sheep, or services, depending upon how well off the student's family was. And if you were a student, you would support yourself by working in the textile industry. There were 26 textile factories in Timbuktu that employed 50 to 100 apprentices. Enrollment was restricted to students at a certain level of education. And working in the tailoring industry secured students an income, enabling them to further their studies. So what do we know about the teaching techniques? The teachers were traditionally experts in a number of texts. This is not quite the same as being an expert in a subject. And the traditional teaching method involved a lecturer dictating a text. The students 
would write their own copies and would read back to the teacher what they had written down. All the students would do the same. In this way, students would learn from each other's mistakes. Once the correct version had been written down, the lecturer would explain the technical intricacies of the text and engage in a higher level discussion. Now, treaties on pedagogy, teaching technique, have survived among the collections of Timbuktu. Some of these books wrote about how to learn to read, how to improve memory, suggestions on what subject matter should be taught, and descriptions of the ideal teacher. There's also a description of an ideal student. Let me quote one of the manuscripts. The ideal student is modest, courageous, patient, and studious. He must listen carefully to his professor and have a solid understanding of his lessons before memorizing them. The students must learn to debate between themselves to deepen their understanding of the material. They must always have a great respect and a profound love for their teacher because these are the conditions for professional success. All right, so what did they actually study? Um, from Professor Ahmed Baba's own account, he studied Arabic grammar and syntax, astronomy, logic, rhetoric, prosody, and there are a number of books that were typically bought for the Timbuktu libraries. Now, once you buy a book, obviously you only have one copy because there's no printing. So someone is going to have to copy that manuscript out. And the manuscripts copied would be astronomy, astrology, botany, dogma, that's religion, geography, Islamic law, literary analysis, mathematics, including calculus and geometry, medicine, mysticism, morphology, music, rhetoric, philosophy, the occult science, sciences and geomancy. Many of these books were derived from Arabic translations of ancient Greek writings and medieval Persian texts. So the Greek astronomer Ptolemy was a basic reference for Islamic astronomer, uh, uh, for Islamic astronomy. Uh, by the way, scholars are now starting to doubt whether Claudius Ptolemy was in fact Greek. You know, because that debate is now being raised. Whichever be the case, the Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle were also common. The Greek father of medicine, Hippocrates, was popular, as well as the Persian medical philosopher and scholar Avicenna. Right, let me show you some manuscripts. Uh, there are astrology and astronomy manuscripts from the Mama Haidara and the Konate libraries. These are libraries held by black families in Timbuktu to this day. There are manuscripts in chemistry and pharmacopoeia from the Mama Haidra Library and the Ahmed Baba Institute. And a student, once they graduated, um, there was a traditional turban that they would receive on their graduation. By the way, I've managed to meet this gentleman. His name is Ali Ul Sidi, and he was a former mayor of Timbuktu. And I would published a book and... This photograph was in there, and he was surprised to see himself in my book. All right, now, the way the, um, the, the, the turban is being tied, it's being tied to spell out the name Allah. All right? Okay, now, after graduating, teachers issued licenses that authorized students in turn to teach particular texts. And the ulama had a variety of roles. Ulama... Um, you've got the French word savant, which might be equivalent, the scholarly community, the learned community. So what happened once you qualified? Some became judges, 
Others became imams, some became teachers, and the rural holy men were like parish priests attending to every part of the life cycle of their flock. So what do we know about the quality of the teaching? The level of instruction was as high as in North Africa and the Middle East, some say higher. There's a story that has been repeated over and over. I think um, Lady Lugard could have been the first person to mention No. Major Felix Dubois was the first person to mention it. A celebrated professor from Hejaz, this is in um, Arabia, is reported to have arrived in Timbuktu with the intention of teaching, but after talking to some of the students and seeing their level of learning, he was humbled and decided to become a student himself. Uh, There's uh, an English woman called Lady Lugard, and surprising as it may seem, she's actually one of the leading authorities on West African history. She wrote a book in 1905 called A Tropical Dependency. And that book has a quote which just needed to be reproduced. The appearance of comets so amazing to Europe of the Middle Ages is noted calmly as a matter of scientific interest at Timbuktu. Earthquakes and eclipses excite no great surprise. Okay, libraries and copying. During the reign of the Askia dynasty, there was an Askia called Askia Daoud. Daoud in English is David. And he established public libraries and employed calligraphers copying books for him. Some of these books were given as gifts to scholars. The book copying industry in Timbuktu was very well structured and extensive. And what you would see with the Timbuktu manuscript is the title, the author, the date of the manuscript, are the names of the scribes who copied it. Sometimes they also named the copyists and the proofreaders and the vocalizers. Uh, the vocalizers are people who added vowels to the Arabic. Oftentimes, they mention for whom the manuscript was being copied, the monies paid, who provided the blank paper, and the dates of the beginning and the ending of the copying of each volume. Many copyists worked at the rate of 140 lines of text per day. The proofreaders read 170 lines per day. And there is a particular 28-volume text that indicates the proofreader was paid half a mitkal of gold per volume. Uh, That's 1.75 to 2.5 grams of gold, while the copyists received one mitkal of gold, which is 3.5 to 5 grams. Okay, so... What do we know about West African calligraphy? Um, Certain styles did develop, and this is the typical Hausa calligraphy. And so you can actually spot it. It it does have its... If you like, if we're going to use a modern term, there is a particular Hausa font, if you like. And this particular example is from the Ahmed Baba Institute. Okay, so what do we know about the literature itself? This is what we know. The books themselves, the documents, range from one-page fragments up to 482 pages. Most of the manuscripts are religious. Korans, Quranic exegesis, collections of hadiths. Hadiths are sayings and comings and doings of the prophet. Sufi writings, theology, law, and other closely related disciplines. There was also poetry in praise of the prophet and seeking his intercession. And by the time we get to the 15th century, Timbuktu scholars were producing original works as well as compiling new derivations and commentaries on established texts. 
Now, there's also commercial documents that begin, let all who read this document know. You can see that's, you know, to who this may concern. This was followed by the name of the buyer and seller, a detailed description of the commodity, a declaration of the legal validity of the sale, and the confirmation that the buyer paid price in full. Finally, the name of the drafter and the date. Then you also had legal documents that were, had the same content, but there's more. The parties were legally competent. That had to be said. The validity base was based on the parties being free from restraint, the parties being in full possession of their mental faculties, and that the transaction was lawful according to Islamic law, and they would end with praise to God and blessings upon the Prophet. Okay, let's talk about poetry. Reading and writing of poetry was an important element of Timbuktu culture, where one finds verses devoted to the Prophet, verses devoted to the adoration of a particular woman or man, and even poems about tea. Poetry was written upon a person's death, and you also had texts on grammar, law, and mathematics being rewritten into verse to facilitate learning. You also had Ajami manuscripts, which is where the Arabic letters are being used to write in Songhai, or, or Wolof, or Hausa, or Fulfude, or Tamashek, West African languages. These texts concern traditional medicine, plants and their properties, occult science, diplomatic correspondence, and poetry. And here's an example of a Songhai text from the Mama Haidara Library in Songhai. All right, now, Professor Ahmed Baba complained to the Sultan of Morocco that his troops had stolen 1,600 books from him, and this was the smallest library of any of his friends. This same Ahmed Baba wrote 70 works on Arabic, many on jurisprudence, and some on grammar and syntax. So 1,600 books was considered a small library that you would be ashamed to tell your friends that you've only got 1,600 books. Okay, African-American professor says, Barber was the greatest and most prolific African writer and scholar in the 16th century. Perhaps African can be dropped here, for who else, Asian or European, authored a comprehensive dictionary and 40 other works during this period? We now know the number of works written by Professor Ahmed Barber was 70. All right, now one of the surviving manu uh, manuscript collections is the El Wangari Library, and this began, was begun by Professor Mohamed Bagayogo El Wangari, who died in 1594, and he was the teacher of Professor Ahmed Baba, one of the oldest libraries in Timbuktu, and I think I showed you a photograph early on of Mokhtar Sidi Yahya El Wangari, who is the person that now directs that library. Okay, now, the Tariq al-Sudan was completed in 1656 by Abdul el-Sadi. Now, opinions on this text vary widely. In the 19th century, it was praised massively, and the word Homeric, this is like Homer, uh, was uh, uh, applied to it. Um, in the later periods, people have now started to diss it and say that it's not, you know, as a work, it's, it's inferior. But... 19th century scholars weren't saying that, just saying. All right, now the Tariq al-Sudan, this is the book that lays out the ancient histories of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. The Tariq al-Fatash, uh, 
This was written by Professor Mahmoud Kati and three of his sons and a grandson, completed in 1665. That's another one of the Timbuktu manuscripts. They are in English translation, and I've read both. Good read, good read. All right, final um, theme, the South African 2008, uh, South African Mali project. Let me explain. In 2008, the South African Mali project produced an exhibition called Timbuktu Script and Scholarship. And the project was initiated by the South African president, Thabo Mbeki, and the uh, Malian president, Amadou Toumani Touré. And this is what the Malian president says. The erudition of these wise elders fostered the production of an original and varied body of important works in mathematics, esoteric arts and practices, medicine, poetry and music, as well as astronomy and reflections on the resolution of community and ethnic conflicts. Well, let me show you some of these manuscripts. Uh, manuscript 776 was written by Timbuktu Professor Ahmed Baba. It praises the search for knowledge and the intrinsic worth of scholarship, and it includes the famous saying that on the day of judgment, the ink of the scholars will be measured against the blood of the martyrs and will be found to be weightier. Do you think that's a quote and a half? Okay, manuscript uh, 4056 is a physics paper, and you can see in the, the top right-hand corner uh, the reflection of light. Can you all see that? Okay, now what's this physics paper about? It's the properties and behavior of light and the interaction of light with matter. Uh, manuscript 6230 is a treaty on geomancy, which is divination by interpreting markings on the ground. This was written by Abdullah Mohammed El-Zanati. And apparently, they believe that you could apply this to military conflicts to predict who would win the battle, what the winners would gain, where the enemy would be, and predict whether the winning army would return without loss. Okay, manuscript 2399 is begging the help of God in extinguishing some of the innovations that have been ignited and reviving those dying acts of the prophetic Sunnah. And Mr. Angry of Timbuktu was vexed about the numbers, the numerous mosques, proliferating in a single village, women visiting cemeteries, how dare they, people raising their voices when praying, people spitting in public, people blowing their noses in public, and people placing their shoes inside a mosque, how dare they. Okay, manuscript 2145 is called On the Obligations of Princes. This was written by an Algerian professor, the Algerian professor's name was Abdul Karim El Majili, but it was commissioned by a Hausa ruler, uh, Mohammed Rumfa. And so um, some people classify this as a Hausa text for that reason. And the guide, the book is a guide that defines the responsibilities and duties of a ruler and details the requirements of good governance. Now, I've never been able to find a translation of this in English. But I do know that French scholars are claiming that the book, um, The Prince by Machiavelli, they are, French scholars are claiming that that book 
includes, the quote they used was cut and paste from this book. Now, I can't prove that because I've not seen on the obligations of princes in English, but you know, when that happens, I'll be able to confirm or deny. Manuscript 1759 is a commentary by Abu Abdullah Farah on Maliki substantive law. And it's an 816-page document which covers dietary laws and fasting, jihad, the penal code, uh, ritual cleansing, almsgiving. Almsgiving is giving charity to the poor, marriage, and prayer. Manuscript 86 is a poem, The Key to the Wings of Desire on the Knowledge of Arithmetic, which is essentially an 18th-century copy of an earlier work, which is a poem, which shows how arithmetic should be used to calculate the division of a deceased person's estate among their heirs. Manuscript 5292 is called Advising, women on sexual Engage me, Advising Men on Sexual Engagement with Their Women. It describes treatments for eye infections, headaches, infertility, and even forget forgetfulness, but it also includes various concoctions, and that's the only way they can be described that allegedly improves sperm count, combats impotence, increases libido, helps sexual potency, and strengthens the husband's and the wife's orgasm. One concoction, and I'm quoting, causes the woman to have an orgasm to the point of madness due to the intensity. And then the manuscript specifies which Quranic passages you're supposed to read before intercourse. Manuscript, everyone wants to know what those passages are. <laughs> Manuscript 2458 is a guide in verse to learning the language of the Fulani. Manuscript 4849 is written in an African language containing Quranic verses to do good deeds and to observe Islamic etiquette. Okay, so that gives you some idea of the intellectual culture. So how did all this come to an end? Well, we read that in Morocco... Uh, political problems were um, kicking in. Morocco, uh, then as now, still had a large black population, and the Sultan of Morocco at the time was Mohammed XI. He is referred to as El Sultan Aswad, so we know he's black. He was overthrown, and the person that overthrew him was Sultan El Mansur of Morocco, who then uh, secretly negotiated a deal with Queen Elizabeth I of England. And you had English arms trading, just as England is a leading arms dealer today, was back then, and you had English arms and um, uh, European soldiers uh, accompanying those arms, which were then uh, ended up in the, the, under the direction of Sultan El Mansur of Morocco. They invaded Songhai in 1591 and destroyed it. So we get the destruction, we get the theft of gold and resources. Uh, a Moroccan source says that uh, um, 1,400 goldsmiths were employed in the Marrakesh Palace just to melt down Songhai gold. Let me give you that figure again. 1,400 goldsmiths. You also had the enslavement of the intelligentsia, Large numbers of professors from Timbuktu, Jene, and the other places ended up in chains, including Professor Ahmed Baba. And that's how Ahmed Baba came to address the Moroccan Sultan and complain 
that, yes, he had the smallest library of his friends, 1,600 books, but the Moroccans had confiscated it. We also got the attempted confiscation of archives and literature. That's why so many black scholars believe that the Timbuktu heritage has been destroyed, and it was destroyed in 1591. But we now know that a million manuscripts have survived. And then with Songhai out of the way, what were the consequences for West Africa? The consequences for West Africa is two-thirds of West Africa were under one government right up until 1591. Now, two-thirds of West Africa is under no government, and this would then allow Europeans to intensify what's going to become known as the transatlantic slave trade. And this concludes the presentation. Thank you very much. What was the status of women in Timbuktu in relationship to its intellectual history, and were the students at the university exclusively male? The simple answer is, is I've not been able to work that out. Now, the Tariq el Fetash uses the term schoolboys throughout. Mm -hmm. um, now, I was in Mali, and um, a meeting was supposed to happen between me and the, the Minister of Culture, who herself was a historian, who on the, and we, we, that, that was supposed to be fixed up. We never had that meeting. The documents that have survived, certainly the ones that are in English, silence women completely. They are silent. Um, they get to say a few words in the, in the chronicles, but only a few words. Now, certainly in West Africa today, um, schooling, um, Islamic madrasa-type schooling is open to boys and girls. But in that period, I have no answer. Do we know how the size of the Timbuktu manuscript collections compare to the Library of Alexandria? This is possibly too theoretical of a question, says the questioner, but she asks anyway. The problem is, is um, do we have a figure for Alexandria? You see, the problem is, is the Alexandria uh, Library is said to have been destroyed. Some people say in the 7th century, some people say AD, some people say it was the, the 4th century AD. Um, because it's been destroyed, I don't know what the figure is that's being claimed for the Alexandrian Library, so I can't make a comparison. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned that the owners or keepers of the manuscripts lost the ability to read them under the French. Yeah. Were most of the manuscripts written in Arabic or in local languages? Both. Both? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you for an educative lecture. I've been coming to Gresham College um, for many years. I've never heard one lecture about black history or culture. Have you any, any, have you any idea why you, for example, weren't invited earlier? Um. Um, Black History Month, um, we began to start a formal series of lectures for Black History Month three years ago. This is our third series, and we really are trying hard to increase the diversity of our offerings overall. Um, we approached uh, Mr. Walker largely through Angela's recommendation, who is the person who handed you the microphone, who had done some work in the area, some research in the area for us. So as I said, um, you're right, uh, a diversity of offerings has, has not been 
as good in the past, but we're trying to work on that going forward. And this is part of, the, part of our efforts, uh, a lecture like this one tonight. Sure. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Because um, I don't usually lecture, uh, I don't usually get invited to speak at what you can call mainstream audiences. You know, I just don't. Um, and so what happens is, is that most of my work is within the black community. Um, and unfortunately, that's just where it is. People don't invite me to speak. Um, <laughs> it is what it is, you know. Um, could you tell us something about the substrata, the, the paper? Where did it come from? Where was it made? And, and also how, how the books were produced. Yeah. The, the, the paper was imported. Um, Timbuktu never developed a paper industry. The West African civilizations never de 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 um, developed a paper industry. So they imported paper. And paper became very, very, very expensive. So what would happen is, if a scholar write, wanted to write a commentary, they'd very often scribble in the margins. So the thing about um, that Lady Lugard talked about where she said a, um, there's a Timbuktu manuscript that mentions comets, that was a scribbling in a margin. And so paper was very, very expensive. Now, um, when it came to books and book binding, in West Africa, I, don't, I can't speak for anywhere else, but the, uh, the books themselves were just pages. If you wanted to bind a book, you would have to buy the leather bindings. And the center of the leather industry was Hausaland, northern Nigeria. And you could then buy the book bindings and then get someone to bind it for you. Do you see? But the, the, but the pages and the bindings are two separate products. Thank you very much. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was that, uh, uh, first of all, are you fluent in Arabic yourself, and have you read some of these manuscripts yourself? In, in, in translation, India? in translation. Only in translation. Yeah, yeah. my Arabic is non-existent, <laughs> absolutely non-existent. Um, so I've read them in translation. So it, with some of them, such as the Tariq al-Fatash, Tariq al-Sudan, they've been translated into French, and then somebody translated them from French to English. So the complete Tariq al-Sudan and Tariq al-Fatash, the complete is in English. But with the, uh, uh, the advent of French language, because it was controlled by the French, yeah, the yeah. modern uh, Malians, are they familiar with some of its traditions? Or, you know, the very, French, very French and few. European education has more or less superseded? That's the problem. That's the problem. So, for example, the leading uh, librarian in Timbuktu is a gentleman called Abdul Kada Haidra. Now, I did actually get to meet him. And he's a French speaker, but as far as actually reading the manuscripts that are in his vast collection, he can't actually do it. And basically, French has completely messed that up. Now, it doesn't mean nobody can. It just means that there are people with collections, including somebody as important as Abdul Kader Haidara, who's in that position, for real. Thank you very much, sir, for a most interesting and stimulating uh, lecture. Um, I was very pleased to, really, uh, to hear that at least a million manuscripts had been uh, saved and they were dispersed amongst 60 families. What I find worrying is um, 
the people who are holding these manuscripts, some of them may uh, just die off and their descendants may not appreciate their significance. Also, the conditions under which they're held, I suppose on the whole it's a dry climate which is conducive. But do you know whether there is any incentive, for example, in this country, I think people can get tax relief if they donate certain papers and documents to the British Library or British Museum, also works of art. Is there anything similar like that um, in Timbuk uh, to or in, in Mali, which will perhaps ensure that these manuscripts will not be lost? Yes. The, uh, I mentioned a gentleman called Abdul Kadar Haidra, and he's uh, a librarian and a businessman. And he, um, uh, he, he's based in Bamako now, but he was based in Timbuktu. And he, he does, his thing is to try and cut deals with manuscript holders so that the manuscripts themselves can be scanned, can be put into book form. And there are um, Islamic uh, 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 publishing houses that are putting some of those manuscripts out but they are facsimiles. So there's no English or French translation. Those things are in, either you can read the Arabic or you can read the Ajami. So there are people like him doing that. Um, outside of that, the, there's been money that has been put towards preservation by the South African government during the time of President Thabo Mbeki. And that's how the South Africa Mali project. So the money was coming from South Africa and fruitful research did come out of it. A black South African astrophysicist, Rodney Thebe Medupe, studied 37 Timbuktu manuscripts on astronomy and then made a documentary called The Astronomers of Timbuktu. Um, you might see some of it online and the full text of what was said in the documentary is also online. And what happened was uh, Medupe promised to do the same thing with the climatological manuscripts, the medicine manuscripts, and the mathematical manuscripts. But the funding hasn't been made available yet. But certainly the astronomical ones, a documentary came out of it. Um, thank you for a very um, interesting talk this evening. Um, I possibly have two questions for you. The first one, um, was there much interaction between these large Western African empires uh, versus the other Africans that were displaced from um, the Egyptian area, also by the Arabs at that time? And secondly, do we have any idea of the depth of the calculus or mathematics that were found um, in those manuscripts, because it somewhat predates what we use today by two, three hundred years. Okay, the, um, the research into migration from North Africa into West Africa, into Central Africa, to, into East Africa, is a relatively new area of research. But there are medieval African documents that say so. Does that make sense? So there are documents, and someone post. I mean, um, some of my Facebook friends are historians, um, and I have seen a document translated claiming um, that some of the populations of medieval Mali 
trace their heritage back to what would have been ancient Egypt. Right? Now, as far as the, the quality of the scholarship, uh, did I mention um, Ali Ould's CD? The guy with that, that I showed the photograph of him in the turban? Yeah. He was the former mayor of Timbuktu. And they found a 16th century manuscript, which they believe is a mathematics paper, which was used during the Songhai period of the 16th century. They translated it, they sent it to Paris to check the level of the paper. And the, the, the paper was an algebraic paper. And it roughly corresponds with the second year of a French maths degree. Okay. Um, I'm really sorry. I am afraid we're going to have to draw it to a close there. But I did want to thank you, Mr. Walker, again for just a wonderful lecture. And if we could all show our appreciation. Welcome back. And a very enlightening and inspirational discussion on uh, the intellectual history of uh, several uh, West African kingdoms and city-states and nation-states. Uh, during uh, the period of the uh, so-called Middle Ages. And uh, we're honoring uh, African American History Month uh, again this year in 2022. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, February the 13th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of our program. Oh, 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Sunday, uh, February 13th, uh, 2022. That was the voice of Candy Staten with Darling, uh, you've all that I've had. And uh, right now we want to move into our concluding segment. This is a lecture uh, by Elizabeth Alexander entitled Towards an Intellectual History of Black Women, uh, dealing uh, with the intellectual history of uh, the United States uh, as far as African people are concerned. Let's listen in. Professor Alexander is chair of the Historic Department of African American Studies at her alma mater, Yale University. She received her MFA from Boston University and her PhD in English from the University of Pennsylvania. Many of you know her as the inaugural poet, she who delivered praise song for the day on that crisp, clear, historic January day in 2009. I'm sure many of you were there to hear it in person. Others of you were introduced to her through her first collection of poetry, The Venus Hottentot, first published in 1990. In between, she published several other collections, including Antebellum Dream Book, 2001, Body of Life, 1997, American Sublime, 2005, American Blue, Selected Poems, 2006, and most recently, Crave Radiance, New and Selected Poems, 1990 to 2010, published in 2010. All of these prove her to be an exquisite wordsmith, capable of creating quiet spaces for contemplation, spaces to focus on a detail. At first, a simple detail that unfolds to reveal deep meaning and transformative possibilities. Her poems are steeped in history, but are also devoted to imagining futures. They give voice to those whom history has deemed mute, and these voices resonate long after we have closed the page. I can still hear Sartre Bartman talking back. As an essayist, Alexander brings keen analysis to bear upon subjects as diverse as Anna Julia Cooper, Romare Bearden, Rodney King. Her essay, Can You Be Black and Look at This, reading the Rodney King video, is widely cited across a number of disciplines. It is bold, it is brave, it is profound. She has also published two collections of essays, Power and Possibility, Essays, Interviews, and Reviews in 2007, and the now classic, The Black Interior, 2003. She has received numerous awards, including the first Jackson Prize for Poetry awarded by Poets and Writers, two Pushcart Prizes, the George Kent Award given by Gwendolyn Brooks, as well as fellowships from both the Guggenheim and Alphonse Fletcher Foundation. After this list of accomplishments, we either are left inspired or tired, but usually both, and yet I think sometimes that my friend is tireless. In the midst of all of this, she manages to be a devoted and attentive mother to two boys, Solomon and Simon, and a teacher who shares her excitement over her students with friends and colleagues, and a friend, a friend who embodies the term sister friend. We heard today, earlier um, in today's panel, about women who were educators and poets. And tonight, I think we will hear from just such a woman, an educator and a poet. Brilliant, generous, 
radiant. Join me in welcoming Elizabeth Alexander. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sister friends use phrases like the now classic. <laughs> Sister friends call your children's name. Uh, Sister friends are always there. So I want to thank all of you for coming and to thank Martha Jones and Farah and Mia Bay and Barbara Savage, Savage who brought me here today, who invited me to present my work to you all. I can't imagine a better community for me to share this work, the beginnings of a project that I'm very excited about. To be in the midst of this conversation presenting this work is a privilege indeed. And I want to also say a special thank you to my sister scholars, many of whom are here, uh, my real sister scholars, my girls, my fellow travelers for over 20 years now, uh, who make me make sense to myself, uh, who keep me going, and who are my ideal readers in the most extraordinary and perfect way. Uh, I'm also happy to have some representation from the department, some graduate students, some former teachers. Where did Marcellus go? Marcellus was my teacher. Yes, he was. Um, and uh, so really, this, this couldn't be a better, uh, a better community. Um, so I'm going to present to you today a portion from a book that I'm beginning that will be called A Prehistory of African American Studies. In the last couple years, and uh, all uh, of us have been a part of this, we've seen the commemorations of the 40th anniversary of African American Studies around the country as we've looked back at the beginning of the end of the elite American university and other institutions as homes largely for and governed by white, male, presumably heterosexual prep school educated students. In thinking and talking about the 40th anniversary of African American studies, in my capacity of, as chair of that department at Yale, I eventually re wearied of my own recitation and those of others of a now familiar though extremely important tale, the student activist, imp activist impetus for African American studies in the late 1960s and so forth. So a few months into the celebrations, I began to shift the course of my comments and emphasize the obvious but neglected that what we were marking was the history of African-American studies in program and department form at predominantly white universities. But that African-American studies, the people, the contributions of people of African descent to fields as subject and episteme was in fact much, much older, reaching of course back to, I would think about the very late 19th century, I would think about the Atlanta University Studies, the American Negro Academy, organized in March of 1897, texts later on such as Sterling Brown's 1831, Outline for the Study of the Poetry of American Negroes, Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro, Benjamin Brawley's 1937 Aesthetic Manifesto, The Negro Genius, one of the unheralded heralded greats. Uh, and other landmarks of African-American studies before it was anywhere close to existing in mainstream universities. So the larger point, as we all know, is that African-American studies is much older than 40 years. It has simply been taking place at historically black institutions and in historically black communities, places like Howard, like Fisk, like the Atlanta universities, like Washington, D.C.'s Dunbar High School, which was founded in 1870 as the M Street School, the first black public high school 
in the country and educated at a time more notable black professionals and public servants than any high school in America, and where students were taught by some of the nation's first black PhDs who were not hired by colleges and universities. I became fascinated with how black studies scholars in the 20s, 30s, and 40s forged a discipline that we now call African-American studies. And as it happens, the scholars whose work I have been examining are women. Uh, and that doesn't surprise any of you here that in a lot of the uh, genealogies that we inherit uh, that the contributions of women are marginalized and, uh, and, and put to the side in other kinds of ways. I'm exploring the ways that some of the disciplinary tenets of African-American studies, though I don't wish to ossify those tenets, are found in the earlier work of these women. I call this project a prehistory as a way of reminding ourselves that disciplines are not eternal nor the same across institutions. Disciplines are living organisms subject to change. I thought that assembling a set of case studies of this early work with the purpose of imagining a new syllabus for the history of the discipline itself would help us predate our myth of origin decades back from the Annus Mirabilis of 1969. In the process, I've thought about how the interdisciplinarity we so vaunt today in African American studies as such a powerful toolkit for our students, in fact, has philosophical and practical origins in studies of the Negro in the 1920s and 30s. And so under the rubric, A Prehistory of African American Studies, today's talk proper is called Cemetery for the Illustrious Negro Dead. In 1931, three black women were engaged in advanced study in departments of anthropology in the United States. In 1931, Harcourt Brace published an anthology called Readings from Negro Authors for Schools and Colleges. This book was distinct from other Negro's antho Negro anthologies of the time, Johnson's Book of American Negro Poetry, Bon Tomp's Golden Slippers, Alain Locke's The New Negro, in that its mission was explicitly pedagogical and aimed not only at school-age students, but also college students. As such, that book is a landmark in the university teaching of African-American literature. It assumed a university audience. It assumed not only teachers, but professors of African-American literature in 1931. As such, then, it is another of our foremother texts in African-American literary study, a book that defined a black canon as part of a larger project that would come to be called African-American Studies. The editor's aim was integrative. Quote, the teacher of English has a wide range of choice, and for the specific program of American literature, the opportunity to embrace in true Catholicity of spirit writings that constitute a significant part of the total American output. The book was edited by Otelia Cromwell, who at the time was professor of English at Minor Teachers College, along with Lorenzo Dow Turner, who was professor of English at Fisk, and who was known as the father of Gullah studies and a key progenitor of African studies. He developed that program at Fisk in the 1940s and was also the author of Africanisms in the Gullah dialect, which he published in 1949 and is still an influential work today. And the third editor was Eva B. Dykes, who was associate professor of English at Howard University. The three held PhDs from Harvard, Radcliffe, and Yale, respectively. Dykes and Cromwell were the first and fifth black women in history to earn the PhD. Dykes in 1921 from Radcliffe. Radcliffe granted its first PhD in 1902, and it's a Radcliffe and not a Harvard PhD I was interested to discover. 
Dykes completed her requirements first, but Radcliffe graduation was held later in the spring, and so she received the degree a few days behind Sadie Marcel Tanner and Georgiana Simpson, University of Pennsylvania and University of Chicago. Dykes' dissertation was entitled, quote, Pope and His Influence in America, that is Alexander Pope, from 1715 to 1815, and explored the attitudes of Alexander Pope toward slavery and his influence on American writers. Cromwell's PhD was from Yale from, in the English department. Indeed, um, she was the first black woman uh, that we know of to earn a degree from Yale. She has been memorialized by Smith College, where she was the first black female undergraduate graduate. And indeed, Smith College has an entire Otelia Cromwell Day, though I dare say Miss Cromwell would disdain the fact that on that day there are no classes. I am interested in Cromwell as part of the unarticulated history of black women at Yale, certainly, but also as unarticulated, um, and also as an important actor in this prehistory of African American studies. Cromwell studied at Yale between other engagements, which was commonplace for Negro scholars at the time. Everybody had a side job or jobs that could in themselves be considered full-time careers. These people had several careers going at the same time. So Cromwell was a teacher at the aforementioned Dunbar High School in Washington. She applied to take a leave from the high school and was discouraged to get her PhD and was discouraged by the local school board who said she was acting in pointless self-interest. This is the same school board that tussled for years with Anna Julia Cooper. While at Yale, she studied, uh, she left anyway, and she began her PhD studies, um, studying with professors George Nettleton, Robert Menner, and Tucker Brooke. Uh, by her written account, uh, he provided exceptional guidance. And in her foreword to the, her dissertation, she wrote that, quote, studying under Brooke has been indeed a privilege and an, an inspiration. She also, in those acknowledgments, offers special thanks to Miss Margaret Corwin, identified as Executive Secretary of the Graduate School of Yale University. There isn't a lot on her in the alumni files of the university, but we do have her dissertation, Thomas Haywood, A Study in the Elizabethan Drama of Everyday Life. It was published by Yale University Press in the Yale Studies in English series in 1928. Combing her graduate file for any semblance of the woman is also a letter that she writes on October 5, 1922 to the Yale Athletic Association requesting two tickets to the Harvard-Yale game. She says, quote, if I may have the privilege of buying tickets, will you send me an application blank? It is noted in her alumni records that she became a member of the board of directors of, quote, an encyclopedia of the Negro, which was a project of Du Bois's. This is in 1932. From 1939 forward, her name is listed in a special card file labeled Negroes who attended Yale, though the graduate school tells you they don't keep records based on race, but they do have a card file called Negroes who attended Yale, which I found useful. Um, and in other places uh, on the record, she's identified as colored. The university has named prizes and scholarships and campus entryways for Edward P. Boucher, the first black male graduate of the university. Our own Department of African American Studies awards the William Pickens Prize, named after a fascinating polymath late graduate who came along a bit later, who among other distinctions was the first Negro awarded a certificate for the mastery of Esperanto. But Cromwell has never been identified or recognized by the university, nor was she known to the graduate school, nor has any other woman of color been recognized for her contribution to any aspect of the university's history. While studying in New Haven, Cromwell lived at 65 Edgewood Avenue, an address that will be familiar to some of you. A letter she wrote to her father on July 13, 1922, gave a wonderful description of graduate study, but also of a savvy scholar forging her way, 1922. Well, I am back in New Haven, where at least the nights are cool even after hot days. I have a large room facing west with three windows. 
In the morning, I work in the Yale Library, which is a quiet, roomy place in the summertime. In the afternoons, I work in my own room. That is at present while I'm making a general survey of my subject, and it is possible to bring enough reading matter home from the library to occupy me for several hours. Later on, when my work becomes more detailed, involving a ceaseless verification of opinions from many sources, I shall be compelled, I think, to do all my reading in the library. Although I am not absolutely certain, I shall not know for sure until the department approves, I think I shall work on some phase of Elizabethan drama. From many points of view, it would be comfortable to select a subject relating to the Negroes, but two difficulties stood in the way. The improbability of my being able, from what I know of the possibilities of the field, to get something that would be big enough for the kind of book I've got to write, Haitian literature accepted, which would moreover fall into the French department, and more important, the fact that any work which I might do in that line would be absolutely independent because, naturally, I'd know more about it than any of the folks here. <laughs> in one way, the independent work would show a certain kind of power, but on the other hand, my main object being in being here is to learn scholarly method and to benefit by scholarly criticism. Most of all, I want the work I may do in the years to come, if years are granted to me, to be critically sound. This is my only opportunity for training, and training is needed for any output which is more than ephemeral or interesting to an unrestrictive group of general readers. After this dissertation is done, but it may take two years to write it, some do, I shall be free and better trained to do something that will perhaps appeal more strongly to you, but I'm not sure and am promising nothing. Sufficient unto the day. There are some changes in the schools, nothing, however, which holds any attraction for me. Ambition for place or fame is not my besetting folly just to be on a public pinnacle, a visible target for all the shafts that the crowd will fling. I am glad that I have a sense of values which makes me happy in doing what I am doing, work that I like which still leaves me time for study, time to keep unembittered and perhaps to do this writing someday. Cromwell's first publication was her dissertation. But by 1931, just a few years later, 1928 to 1931, she's turned full-time to study of the Negro, that which would have proved impractical at Yale. English as a field has been supplanted with what I argue is a prehistory of what we now call African-American studies. In the letter I've just read, Cromwell has neatly named the rub for some graduate students even today, attempting to find their way interdisciplinarily and in fields that would be built as they participated in them. Her 1931 anthology with its explicitly pedagogical aims draws a circle around a literature called African American, a literature which she centers and does not posit as substrata or at the margins. Cromwell's niece and the keeper of her legacy is the venerable Adelaide Cromwell Gulliver, Adelaide Cromwell Hill Gulliver, emeritus professor at Boston University, herself a former director of African American studies, also keeper of the legacy of Dorothy uh, West, many, many other accomplishments. A preliminary inquiry to Professor Gulliver uh, that uh, asked her and framed her Aunt Otelia, or she called her Aunt T, uh, as a progenitor of African-American studies elicited a sharp contradiction. She would not have wanted to be known as someone doing African-American studies. What she was doing was literature, said Professor Gulliver. So too, John Hope Franklin's insistence, his ironic insistence that Negro history would be studied in history departments and that the University of Chicago would never have African-American studies. John Hope Franklin is part of why the University of Chicago doesn't have African-American studies. 
Uh, and we can read these stances as conservative or as a radical restructuring of what is relevant knowledge and what will be done under traditional departmental rubrics. Let us turn just briefly to another black woman scholar in 1931, one whom we usually consider as a writer. Uh, of course, I'm speaking of Zora Neale Hurston. There's so many Hurstons, it is daunting to think about where to focus one's inquiry, of course. We know her best as the author of The Sumptuous, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and perhaps also as the woman who marched through the very streets around us in her tilted chapeau, making declarations such as, I am not tragically colored. But her career taken as a whole contains myriad facets and phrases, and uh, I don't need to go through all of these for you all. Um, she was strategic, she did as she pleases, and apparently modeled herself on herself. In 1931, Hurston had for some years been engaged in serious anthropological study under the guidance of Franz Boas with Melville Herskovitz and also Ruth Benedict. Um, and that work with Ruth Benedict, they talk about her as a, a scholar, a, a student of, of Boaz's and Herskovitz, but she also um, worked very intimately with Ruth Benedict. Her work took her deep into the intimacy of black communities in Honduras, Jamaica, Bermuda, Florida, New Orleans, and Haiti. She collected the folklore and ritual that she published in Mules and Men and Tell My Horse, demonstrating how deeply Hurston was taken into these communities to know their ways and philosophies. The measure of her work in that field, Hurston as anthropologist, not merely as colorful raconteur, has been well underway with other scholars. And I want us just to pause for a minute, I'm not gonna talk about Hurston at length, but just to put her on the table, to think about, uh, about the ways in which she affected the discipline itself. Picture Hurston as Langston Hughes describes her in the big C, moving through Harlem with her calipers. Literally, picture her. Quote, almost nobody could stop the average Harlemite on Lenox Avenue and measure his head with a strange-looking anthropological device and not get balled out for the attempt except Zora, who used to stop anyone whose head looked interesting and measure it. That's Hughes in the Big C. Her work articulated an intimate understanding of what we now call the black diaspora and African retention, black people occurring everywhere and in connection, Haiti, Jamaica, Florida, Harlem, USA. And I would argue that um, in her opening, and again, I'm condensing this piece of Mules and Men, where she talks about how um, she felt that, um, well, I'll just uh, read you this little bit. When I pitched head foremost into the world, I landed in the crib of Negroism. From the earliest rocking of my cradle, I had known about the capers Br'er Rabbit is apt to cut and what Squinch Owl says from the housetop, but it was fitting me like a tight chemise. I couldn't see it for wearing it. It was only when I was off in college, away from my native surroundings, that I could see myself like somebody else and stand off and look at my garment. Then I had to have the spyglass of anthropology to look through at that. And so um, I think what I want to just condense here is if you think about this, this book and this introduction as being decades ahead of theorizing what it means to be of the community of people that you study, uh, of studying communities of color from within, of putting the embodied subject as investigator into in, in, academic work, the embodied female subject, the embodied black subject, and for its techniques of scholarship, of, excuse me, storytelling, which become an intimate part of the weave of her scholarship. I think that you have a look ahead not only to some of the principles that we hold dear in African American study, studies, but also uh, a very important early intervention into the discipline of anthropology when it is still a relatively young discipline in the United States.
1931, another black woman was finishing her work for the master's degree in anthropology at Harvard. Like Hurston, she was interested in black people and their ways in communities that were familiar to her that she could move in and interpret in ways no white investigator could. I have long wondered if Hurston was acquainted with that woman, Caroline Bonday. In 1932, when Day graduated from Harvard, she became the first woman of any color to earn a master's degree in physical anthropology. At the time, to the best of my knowledge, there were only two other African-American women who were studying anthropology, Hurston and, of course, Catherine Dunham, who was studying at Northwestern University in Chicago and published her work on Haiti and Jamaica in Journey to Akompong and Islands Possessed. Um, also, a little bit after that, um, later in the 1930s, um, a woman named Manet Helen Fowler, who I'm just starting to, um, to study, um, gets her uh, uh, degree in journalism with a minor in anthropology and accounting from NYU, um, and she goes on quite a bit later in 1952 to become the first um, uh, woman of color to earn her PhD in anthropology, and that, uh, she earns that from Cornell. But the work commences in the 30s, just to give us a sense of that time. Caroline Bonday's thesis, A Study of Some Negro White Families in the United States, was published in 1932 by the Harvard African Series. These three women had no predecessors in their field. In Day's archive at the Peabody Museum at Harvard, there is a newspaper clipping from 1926 that mentions the work of Miss Zora Neale Hurston doing anthropological study in Harlem with her professor Franz Boas. I don't know if any of, of us were in the newspaper when we were in graduate school, for being in graduate school, um, but, uh, but she was at the time. My colleague Robert Steptoe has coined the wonderful and useful phrase, family bookshelf Afro-Americanist, to describe the way that most of us, certainly up to my generation, uh, did the bulk of our learning in African-American literature at home or autodidactically or in black community context rather than at school. Though I had the defining good fortune of a good college education in Afro-American studies, nonetheless, the vast, vast majority of what I learned from the field began at home. And at home also, I learned that black life is ephemeral and precious, and learned powerfully that the archive was our responsibility and no one else's, that nobody would truly mind our legacy but ourselves. When I was a child, I loved looking at the books on my parents' shelves, and a study of some Negro white families was one that I returned to time and again. This book chronicled over 300 families of mixed black and white ancestry using the sometimes discomforting methodologies of physical anthropology available at the time, the measurements of skull widths, nose breadths, hair texture, and so forth, along with sociological inquiry into subjects' home, work, and social habits. Who were these people sitting in photographs on porches with their high white collars and crocheted shawls? their voluminous hair arranged carefully, people named Archibald and Florida, Nancy and Josephine, Ulysses, Nellie, Sinai, Etna, Daisy, Augustus, and Inez. The book is a hefty tome, and within its pages of prose were the things that most compelled me, the photographs most taken by Day herself, not only of her subjects, but also of their hair. Under each portrait and hair sample was a racial breakdown, fractions of N, Negro, W, White, I, Indian, in the subject's racial makeup. This information was ascertained through interviews and knowledge of family history, but racial, the racial combinations marked the pictures of the hair samples so that, once again, discomfortingly, they became representative of racial types. Hair was described along a spectrum from frizzled to curly to deep waves to low waves to perfectly straight. 
Day wrote of the extreme mutability of black hair texture and emphasized, quote, it is doubtful if two people are ever seen with hair that is exactly alike. The book amazed me. It was unlike anything I have, had ever seen nor have seen since. It seemed to both expose the secret lives of black people and conceal further secrets behind its pages. There were notable names amongst the family trees, W.E.B. Du Bois, 5-8's N, 3-8's W, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, 3-8's N, 1-8's I, 4-8's W, artist Laura Wheeler Waring, 4-8's N, 1-8's I, 3-8's W, civic leader Walter White, you want to know? <laughs> 5 32nd N, 1 32nd I, 26 32nd W, uh, and so forth. It seemed an invitation to self-anatomy and analysis. It seemed somehow embarrassing, black intimacy on display and open to imperfect interpretation. I loved the structures of proper family trees, the lines and branches that connected. I would ruminate on the stopping point, the ancestor beyond which we could not go, where the information stopped. Often, of course, it stopped where the slave ships let off on the shores of the United States. Day's charts stopped with pure racial types, the full-blood African or Indian or Caucasian who was always a man. I cut a snippet from my own hair as a child and tried to hold it next to the samples. Did my hair reflect my blood? What was Day trying to demonstrate with the study? First, it's important to think about race mixture as it was imagined in the 1920s. Uh, she was thinking about black people whose ancestors were African and Caucasian and often Native American. In other words, she was talking about black folks when she says Negro white. Her working papers were kept because her professor, Ernest Hooten, put them in the Peabody, and they're the only extant working notes of a project taken on by a black woman in, woman in those years in that place, a place which, of course, is also the land of Agassiz, uh, and that's a whole other thing that we could go on about, but to think about what she was thinking about, how she was intervening with the legacy of Agassiz, which Boaz and others had certainly begun to take on, but which loomed enormously um, over this kind of science. The archive contains the cards on which Day kept notes and measurements on the physiognomy of her 2,537 subjects. There are large careful charts and family trees, and perhaps most fascinating is her correspondence with her subjects. In these letters we see her energy and tenacity. She pursued the project over a decade through serious illness, other jobs, and geographic dispersal. We see the extent of her social network. Her subjects were often people she knew, so letters not only address the business at hand, but also the affairs of the day. She consults, quote, older people in the community who were not related, but whose unofficial business it was seemingly to remember the ancestry of everybody else. And her own powers of persuasion are evident, not least of all when the thorny issue of passing arose. Bond's work seems to have been supported in its initial stages by her communities, perhaps because her subjects were proud to support the work of one of their women endorsed by a grant at Harvard University in the 1920s, work that she consistently and proudly described as, quote, research in the field of anthropology. But when she wrote people again to ask permission to publish her findings, she, objections frequently arose, quote, we do not wish publication. None of us want either information or pictures used in book form. People ask her to be discreet about matters such as income. And one says, my brother is strictly W-in Boston. You understand. 
Other subjects were described as fearful of exposure because they were, quote, passing for white or had, quote, gone to the other side. It's actually a whole encyclopedia of, of fabulous passing euphemisms, um, <laughs> crossed over, you know, so forth. Um, and Day stated that of 346 families, 35 of the families state that there are one or more members who are passing either entirely or only temporarily for purposes of obtaining lucrative employment. She says that she knows of 50 more families who, who's with members passing who were not part of her study and wrote, quote, practically every family with whom I have talked can give me an additional few names. She's careful to talk about her attempts to make a cross-section class-wise of black communities and is explicit that she did not want the achievements of some members of her group, quote, to argue for the advantage of race crossing. It is my firm belief that Negroes who are of unmixed blood are just as capable of achievement along all lines as those who are mixed. It sounds awkward but belies a firm understanding of the danger of the work she was doing and the danger of any reading of the body and what can be done with that information. Some of her older subjects, as she said, quote, were children of the very masters with whom they served. In 1927, she writes that she's giving up using blood samples. Quote, I decided that if I could not get them from whole families, they were not worth very much. She developed her own methodological quirks, which illustrate the ways in which her inquiry could only have been conducted from within the group being studied. With regard to hair samples, for example, Day notes that, quote, errors due to artificial straightening were partly eliminated by Mrs. Day, who knew most of the subjects and had notes on their true hair form. <laughs> Amongst her papers are letters from uh, Du Bois. Um, on April 25, 1930, he wrote this short genealogical sketch. My maternal great-great-grandfather was a soldier in the Revolutionary War, and my maternal great-grandfather was in Shays' Rebellion. Several members of this family were in the Civil War, one being a corporal. On my father's side, my grandfather was of the white Du Bois family of Ulster County, New York, and my grandfather, being white enough to pass, was educated at the well-known Cheshire School in Connecticut until his father died and he was apprenticed. One member of my paternal grandfather's family was United Minister to Haiti. My grandfather is buried on the Yale campus next to the grave of Yehudi Ashman. In this unguarded letter, we see his assiduous attempts to write himself a proxy for the Negro writ large into various narratives of belonging, educationally, militarily, nationally, religiously, racially. Many of her correspondents similarly chronicle that which some must have believed would have been lost to, his, to history otherwise. One of the boxes of Day's archive is a bibliography of an early course in African-American anthropology. There are several clippings from miscellaneous newspapers and journals with titles such as, Anthropologists say there is no such thing as absolutely pure race. Anthropologists say Nordic superiority is a myth. Quote, the, that's from the National News of the Elks. Quote, the African pygmy and the blonde Nordic belong to one species. The work of a Dr. Faye Cooper Cole at the University of Chicago is said to, uh, 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 to have done that study. There's Carter G. Woodson's Free Negro, Heads of ne Free Negro Heads of Families in the United States in 1830, together with a brief treatment of the Free Negro. Uh, there's a book by Wendell Dabney of Cincinnati's Colored Citizens, an article by Ralph Bunch, quote, The Negro in Chicago Politics, an article by her advisor, Ernest Hooten, quote, The Evolution of the Human Face and Its Relation to Head Form, read before the Easter Association of Graduates of the Angle School of Orthodontia in Boston, Massachusetts, reprinted from the journal The Dental Cosmos. Uh, and there's the 1902 Atlanta University study, The College-Bred Negro. 
I, I read out this eclectic archive because I think it reveals the working process of building bibliography in a new discipline where the card catalog does not give you what you want and where today Google Scholar will not give you what you want. It is this piecing together and pulling from disparity that characterizes the work of African Americanists to this day. Why the discipline of anthropology? What did the metaphorical tea leaves of physiognomy suggest today? In the end, for me, the Caroline Bondé project is about a black woman trying to move beyond received ideas about race, to do more than follow hunches, but let a relatively new science tell her things she did not already know or perhaps even suspect. That she pushed her social group, many of whom did not want to be pushed or investigated, to tell their stories and secrets. That she made black people believe that having their bodies calibrated and measured, their very body hair snipped and analyzed and saved, would tell them something they did not know. That seems audacious, bodacious, perhaps visionary, especially when we look at the state of art and science involved with the boom in DNA ancestry and research today. It is though she imagined the disarticulated black body could be put back together again in a new light and drawing new conclusions, the full span of Negro endowment and achievement. So too Hurston with her calipers in Harlem. Day's anthropology would not hold up against what we now know about race and biology. She also mixed what we would call sociology with hard science, imagining certain traits as representative. But I think this illustrates the way in which early African American studies was interdisciplinary out of necessity. When you consider the small number of highly educated black people engaging in serious study of black people, they so avidly gleaned whatever they could from whatever disciplinary exposure they might have had. Higher education was that dear and that rare. So small wonder that a trained anthropologist would employ sociological techniques and would then settle in and work from an English department as Day did. She did a lot of this work from the English department at Atlanta University. And she wrote fiction, such as her much anthologized story, The Pink Hat. It didn't mean that she was scattershot across the disciplines, but rather that she was an economical intellectual who used every scrap she had been exposed to in the service of educating her people and theorizing on their lives and conditions. And so too Hurston, with her extraordinary gifts of metaphor and ear for textured language, created her own form in Mules and Men, a form with which to write with an insider's knowledge, but an outside, uh, outsider's keen eye. How do we commune with the illustrious Negro dead? A phrase I will explicate shortly. How is that part of the work of doing African American studies? And here, moving toward conclusion, I will briefly turn to the autobiographical, something with which African American and feminist studies of the last 50 years have shown us is admissible in our scholarly work. We had that strange book in my house growing up because Caroline Day was my great aunt. And if that had not been the case, I'm quite certain I wouldn't have known about her work, though anthropologists have more recently become aware of her in about the last 10 years, and scholars such as Heidi Artizone have begun to write about it. In studying Great Aunt Carrie, who lived in family lore but was unknown to me, died long before I was born, so she then became an another elusive scholarly subject, I went to the Peabody Museum at Harvard. The archive is where I commune with the illustrious Negro dead. On my first visit, I was overwhelmed by all that was there, but particularly wanted to see if they had the hair samples that she worked with. And amazingly there, folded four times into pieces of white paper, is the hair, hundreds of cuttings from people in her study, cuttings she photographed and then put on pages indicating racial mixture, hair of differing degrees of length, bend, curl, frizzle, shine, hair like smoke, hair marked three-quarters eye, one-quarter eye, one quarter N, 
boxes full of nearly 100-year-old black hair. Properly, the archivist told me this should not even be here. <laughs> Organic material must be kept elsewhere. Um, so needless to say, she said, you're not to touch the hair, you're not to look at the whole lot of it. But I had to see the hair of one of Caroline Bonday's subject in particular, her half-sister, Winona Bond, 19 years old in 1927, when the sample was clipped, my grandmother. The archivist complied. What can I say about sitting in an archive at Harvard University holding a piece of my grandmother's hair. When she died at 86, the last thing I did in her presence, in the presence of her body, was stroke her beautiful hair, which felt wavy and soft as it always had and slightly crisped with hairspray, though she had been dead for an hour. Her spirit was still in the room, but was quickly leaving, and we could feel it, and that was that. The hair was the last of her I touched before she died. Her hair now in the archive before me, the same color as mine at 19, dark brown with a slightly reddish undertone, not as curly as mine, a bit mussy as befits a young woman on the go, as she was then, away from Washington, D.C., from inevitable teacher's college and early imminent marriage, from the further south of most of the people she knew and came from, toward learning and sister and all the possibilities she enacted and represented, this black woman in the midst of few others making herself up and making up with a few others a discipline. I touched the hair, though I was not supposed to. I am reverent about libraries and archives and their rules, so I justified my transgression with the thought that I was the only person on planet Earth who might ever need to touch this particular hank of hair. I held my grandmother's hair, which felt like the end of her, except stranger still, it was the before of her, before I knew her, before she even had a child who would be my mother. This was a Winona Bond I never knew, nor did my mother. No, not Winona, a hank of her hair at 19. According to her sister's notations, one half N, one quarter I, one quarter W. What does it, what could it possibly tell me? Taking care not to disturb its pattern, I put the cutting back into the paper and folded the packet four times and returned it to the archivist who put it in a glassine envelope in an acid-free box in a basement at the Peabody Museum at Harvard University where it remains in the Caroline Bonday papers. And then I wrote about it, first in something more bellatristic and now in this broader study. The artistic impulse is sometimes the most powerful way that African-American experience can be understood. And so, to really conclude, I want to turn to a letter that Zora Neale Hurston wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois that I've been thinking about for some years now. And I finally realized the ways in which it offers an object lesson and some metaphors to explain this idea of the prehistory of the discipline of African American studies. Hurston did not always get on with so-called Negro establishment figures. Her vitality and forthrightness was sometimes taken as irreverent and unbecoming the race. She had a keen pretension meter and at one point called Du Bois, quote, a goateed, egotistic, wishy-washy, haughty aristocrat. And she called Mary McLeod Bethune a heifer. <laughs> but that didn't, which would be my favorite line in the paper. Um, but that didn't stop her from writing to Du Bois in 1945. Uh, and she wrote, you know how you say, you know, Paris, France, you write where you're writing from. And Hurston wrote in the top corner, from aboard the houseboat cruiser Suntan. <laughs> she wrote with a wild and wonderful idea, quote, as dean of American Negro artists, why do you not propose a cemetery for the illustrious Negro dead? something like Père Lachaise in Paris. 
She envisions it on lush Florida terrain and suggests that, quote, Negro sculptors and painters decorate it with scenes from our own literature and life, mythology and all. She, she, she suggests, quote, there's a one and then two, that there be no regular chapel unless a tremendous amount of money be secured. Let there be a hall of meeting and let the Negro sculptors and painters decorate it with scenes from our own literature and life, mythology and all. Funerals can be held there as well. Addition to first suggestion, in Florida, the vegetation would be green the year round so that visitors during the winter months would not see a desolate looking place. For you must know that the place would attract visitors from all over the world. Three, as far as this is possible, remove the bones of our dead celebrities to this spot. Four, let no Negro celebrity, no matter what financial condition they might be in at death, lie in inconspicuous forgetfulness. We must assume this responsibility of their graves being known and honored. You must see what a rallying spot that would be for all that we want to accomplish and do. There one ought also to see the tomb of Nat Turner. Naturally, his bones have long since gone to dust, but that should not prevent his tomb being among us, Fred Douglas, and all the rest. Du Bois replied bureaucratically and without much enthusiasm, and the idea died. The male dean of Afro American Negro artists overvaunted by us all, even as we recognize his genius and steady, astonishingly varied contribution to 20th century intellectual life had the power to shut down certain ideas and approaches to studying and thinking about black people. And the cemetery is a metaphor for the anthology, the curriculum, the syllabus. Hurston understood in profound terms the expendability of Negro life. She had a scholar's inherent sense of the need to preserve. She knew that black people could be thrown away and forgotten, and so the call for that cemetery, that anthology. I think she knew black people would be misunderstood and underestimated, hence, hence the anthropological work, the will to see and know and understand, but also the very particular will that we share to document. It is something else altogether, the call of the scholar who knows, even if she does not articulate it, that there is something fundamentally fungible about that which she wishes to preserve through loving study. I think of libraries and archives in some way as cemeteries for the illustrious Negro dead places where Hughes and Hurston and Wright and others whose names we do not yet know converse with each other and are audible to those who pay attention. Hurston imagines something it is still sometimes hard to imagine, Negro rest, the much-deserved proper resting place after lives of often anonymous service and struggle. The extant and evolving archives of African-American studies are also such resting places not for bones, but for the perishable clues of lives which we still attempt to recreate so we can understand them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Power back, my people. Thank you. Okay, so people. Oh, now I got my glasses on. I see who else is here. People, people, people. My people. Um, so I, I would love your your thoughts and um, and comments and questions. 
if there's some difference there. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and um, uh, I don't. I, I, I could sort of move towards it, you know, and I and I do think it has something to do with understanding the way that the black body is is at the center of how we are seen and misnamed even before the social narrative gets built around us. Um, I think that anthropology was a way perhaps to understand something about fear of the black body, to understand something uh, about uh, power of the black body, that which surrounds and emanates in mythologies of the black body, um, that, you know, sociological inquiry um, understood people in groups, but perhaps sometimes missed the individual, um, maybe. Um, I think it's also important to emphasize that, um, and I say this briefly, but uh, actually Day studied with Du Bois, you know, that sociology itself, and there, of course, are, are, is a great deal written about Du Bois's shaping of the discipline of sociology, right? I mean, the discipline itself. So Du Boisian sociology, um, I think, also became an interesting tool for some of these people working in other disciplines, but understanding that the whole story couldn't be told with just one set of tools. Um, so that's a, a sort of speculation. That's a great question. <coughs> Hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, Stephanie Evans from University of Florida. Thank you so much for that talk. Um, I am kind of indoctrinated into African-American studies as a graduate of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Ah. And what I'm interested to, to know is how you think your work might impact the difference, the, the perceived difference of, of conference attendees between ASALH and NCBS. Because to me, you know, NCBS is the organization that really focuses on this we've been here for 40 years. Right, 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 right. Whereas ASALH is, is this prehistory. Mm -hmm. And I say that as someone who's very uh, invested in, in looking at the discipline as a discipline and how you think your work might impact that uh, seeming, seeming rift. Another great question, which it seems to me um, kind of points up some of the work that I have to do, what I have thought about doing with this work as it hopefully grows, um, taking it on the road, you know, um, presenting it to those different communities and seeing how those different communities, what their particular angle of vision is. You mentioned UMass Amherst, and you know, one of the things I know about that piece. Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude our program for this week, the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. We just heard a lecture by Elizabeth Alexander entitled Towards an Intellectual History of Black Women, uh, discussing various aspects of uh, African American uh, literary and intellectual history. And uh, this program, uh, you can have access to it by logging on to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs, and websites, or through social media networks. If you want to read the Pan African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of uh, jazz trumpeter Kenny Durham from the album entitled Jazz Contrast from 1957. 
This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Thank you.